Hello and welcome back to Subspace Radio. It's me, Kevin. And me, Rob. And we are here to talk about the beginning of Star Trek Lower Decks Season 4, Episodes 1 and 2. They did a twofer for us this week and we're going to squeeze them into one episode. Seems to be a common thing on the streaming platforms, is pushing it out, especially because of Star Trek Day this week. Happy Star Trek Day for this week to you, Rob. Happy Star Trek Day to you as well, Kevin. So yeah, dropping two episodes, dropping a special little celebration video. It feels imprudent, I have to say, to throw away, quote unquote, first run Star Trek, to throw out two episodes in one week. When we know this is a limited resource at this point. <laughs> yep, yep. And especially considering during all this promotion and publicity, especially this week, they've been celebrating the very short Treks launch episodes. Yeah. Did you catch the first one? I did. What <laughs> the? I'm still trying to figure out what the hell I just watched. I think that's how they're all going to be. Yeah. I think they got a stand-up comic to write one Star Trek joke, and they build five minutes of animation around it. And that's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. And, if... and the, the, the stand-up comic gets to play Captain Kirk. Of course. Or the captain. So, yeah, it's very mm -hmm. much not Kirk. It's very much him as the captain. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, very interesting. But not a bad guest captain gig when you get Ethan Peck as Spock playing your, your I know, character. right? He's sort of like a flight of fancy for a stand-up comic going, wouldn't be funny, and Paramount Plus go, all right, here's all our budget, all our money, and it, all our cast. Ethan Peck is too good for us. He is too good for us. He does not need to slum it like this is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yes, considering two episodes of Lower Decks, new very short treks, but still no recognition of Prodigy. I know, that was shocking. They said look forward to prodigy news and as far as i can tell all that was is a fresh plug for the second half of season one coming to blu-ray soon i think i saw that on socials somewhere but otherwise what a letdown star trek day they had nothing to announce given that jerry o'connell did a pretty good job of hosting about 20 minutes of clips yes uh, like patting themselves on the back of isn't star trek great i actually i enjoyed that stream for what it was jerry o'connell's lovely we were told to expect news, even just like merch news, but Prodigy news was called out specifically, and that was quite a letdown. Yeah, they should probably take a leaf out of the book of Star Wars celebrations who really know how to build up the hype with very little content. And they do it over an entire week. I have not had the pleasure of watching Star Wars celebration. But, <laughs> uh... I did my first this year where I do the live YouTube feed. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, watched all three days of what they give out for free. Of course, the more specific, exclusive sneak preview panels they don't share online, but all the mm -hmm. hype ones that they just do where they call out cast and go, oh, look, it's that guy. Oh, look, it's that person. Look, it's that droid. So, yeah, Star Trek really does need to take a leaf out of what to do. And Prodigy in particular was very conspicuous by its absence. The mere fact there was nothing of it stood out more than if it had just been if it had just been added in with just a obligatory little clip here or there yeah people would be outraged and a bit annoyed yeah they could have said and also prodigy is bringing in the next generation of fans but it's like they at a last minute a lawyer told them no you declared <laughs> prodigy as a tax write-off so you can't even say its name yeah it's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous so not everything is going well especially with everything 
coming to a close, Discovery coming to a close, Picard coming to a close. They're sort of like really putting all their eggs into one Strange New World basket. But it was good to actually celebrate and enjoy what they do have and what they do well, which is Lower Decks. Mm. Let's go... Let's go to season four, episode one, Tuvix. T-W-O-V-I-X. Thank you very much, because it's the sequel. It was hiding in plain sight. If, it wasn't even hiding, let's be no. honest. No. As soon as I saw this episode title, I knew we were in for some Voyager reference nonsense, but I did not realize just the volume of Voyager references we were strapping in for. That is the, yeah, the most amount of references you could fit into a 20 minute episode without actually having some of the original cast cameo. They had. Yeah. Yeah. It was remarkable how much they got in as they did the previous season with their celebration of D Space Nine. This was in true Voyager fashion, celebrating all the batshit crazy things that we have often talked about here on the podcast that came out of Voyager. I'm looking at you, threshold salamanders. <laughs> and holodeck clowns. <laughs> they, that, they packed it all in. Holodeck clowns that never actually appeared in the holodeck, which they did give a brief mention to. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Sullivan. <laughs> Sullivan. Oh, I miss my wife. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite line of the episode. I miss my wife. I had to pause and explain it to my partner <laughs> because she was like, that's weird. And I was like, you don't know how weird. You don't know how. Wait till you see Kate Mulgrew look at your, at Sullivan's face and just go. And I've said it many times. I think I said it even last week. Uh-huh. Lose the wife. Oh. <laughs> so yes, we haven't even, like, we've gone straight into our references to it. It's the first episode of season four and yeah. they really bring out the hijinks aspects and the chaotic nature of Lower Decks all comes out on display. First episode back going. This is our show. Remember it. It's chaotic. It's insane. It's so nerdy. They've been given the assignment to take Voyager back to Earth where it's going on display because it's now a museum. I was almost surprised it wasn't Geordi's Starfleet Museum that they rolled up to. It does seem to be connected in because we do know it does get there. And this is before mm. Picard. And we do know from yeah. Endgame that Janeway says that um, Voyager is now a museum. The curator does say it's off to Earth before it goes en route to space. So you can see yeah. it's... They're getting there. They're getting there. All those dots and Ts and all those type of things are being filled in. So they're going to Earth first, and then they're going to Geordie's museum. When they pulled up to it and they got the curator on screen and there was the conversation before the reveal of Voyager... I saw in the background of the view screenshot of the curator, the railing of the bridge of Voyager. And I was like, I know what that is. <laughs> I know it's in the title, but I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So that we had every single reference. We had pretty much every crew member represented in mannequin form. <laughs> and diagrammatic form at times as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> yes. A dancing Neelix on the screen. <laughs> And taking us to all the places, the mess hall, taking us to Seven of Nine's quarters, taking us. I didn't, we didn't, didn't make our way into, oh, did we make our way into the medical lab? Not sure. And the bridge. I don't remember seeing it. And the bridge and no captain's yes. quarters, but yes. Was it to Lynn who observed the ship smells old and like Borg? <laughs> 
Um, I, I think they might have been in sick bay when she made that observation. And I, I particularly love they carried on with the tradition. A mariner referred to it as the Voy era. Mm -hmm. yeah. And keeping up that tradition of all how each season is referred to online. And my particular favorite thing is it's been discussed for years from fans ever since it came out. And they just pretty much came out and said, oh, let's figure out what ingenious way Janeway figured out to solve this problem. No, she just flat out <laughs> killed two Vicks. <laughs> wow. She, she did not mess around. Um, <laughs> and Shax is just so horrified by finding out, what the hell? Overall thoughts about this episode. I thought it was a fitting homage to Voyager. Yes. I think it made me realize in comparison to our visit to Deep Space Nine last season that my feelings for Deep Space Nine do run significantly deeper than for Voyager because watching this, I was sitting back going, okay, I, I will pay the joke. A lot of weird stuff happened on Voyager and we're going to smoosh it all into one episode and it's going to be high laugh volume. But... It was also that indulging almost, I'm going to use the term Lower Decks worst habits of let's build a show that basically is nothing but references to the past. And I've wanted for a heart in this episode. So yeah, the, the comedy was a little too thick in this one for me. Yeah, the D Space Nine episode very much have, let's make a gag about how much time we spend looking at the pylons. Obviously having Quark and Kira there was amazing and the wormhole, but that was enough. They, we didn't yeah. fill it with multiple references here or there, but this one just slammed No, we went there in. and then we told a story, but yeah. this one we went there and we immersed ourselves in co comedy references. Exactly. I mean, I think the, the real heart of this story was Boiler going through his process of going, I could be promoted. Will I do okay with promotion? And also Mariner finally stepping up and sh showing how much she's evolved since season one by being there for Boimler. For Boimler in the corridor. Yeah, that yeah. was the heart of this episode. You're right. I forgot about the heart-to-heart -heart covered in slime in the <laughs> corridor. That was, that was a great scene between those two. Yeah, it was and it really, show, especially because considering where I was with my thoughts of Mariner at the start of my Lower Decks journey, I detested Mariner for start, so self-absorbed, nothing would stick on her. And to be at the point now where she's acknowledging how much she's grown and how much she is there for her friends was wonderful. And that's just good writing. That's just good writing where yeah. you have your characters actually evolve. Oh, we cannot forget to mention the addition to the opening credits of the Star Trek IV Whale Probe, Rob. I was cheering for you there. Damn right. And we even heard that beautiful, sweet, sweet sound. We even heard it. Yeah, it's in, the, it's in the soundtrack now for, I assume, forever. <laughs> and yes, at the end of the episode, we come to the fact that they are no longer ensigns. Tendi, Boiler, and Mariner get their second lieutenant lower class rankings. <laughs> they get their second lieutenant, pip. Lieutenant junior grade. Junior grade. That sounds like the grassy <laughs> junior high. In, it almost sounds like a demotion, doesn't it? From <laughs> ensign to lieutenant junior grade. Yeah, it's the junior grade that really sinks in the humility <laughs> that you need. Yeah, they hammered it home too. They didn't just leave us with JG like they normally do. They were like, here's what it stands no, for. No, that's what it stands for. And Rutherford being quite... Upbeat about going, no, 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 no. They give out promotions. Nothing gets poor Rutherford down. No. I'm sure the next episode will not have him neurotically pursuing that ah. pip. <laughs> yeah, him just going, oh, no, they don't give out promotions when we break stuff. 
And it was great that Boyle and Rutherford actually made themselves a part of the exhibition. Yeah, I was I was impressed by that curator. He was like, oh, got to make another exhibit. That confirmed for me that this curator is the ultimate Voyager nerd. Like, there is no trivia too trivial for it to have an exhibit <laughs> on that ship. Very true. And great little gag. <laughs> when they had the Harry Kim model, and he goes, it's a very rare mission worn. He goes, uh, how many did he go? And yeah. I was surprised our ensigns did not make a remark about, oh, it's Harry Kim, the ensign who never got promoted. <laughs> they all outrank Harry Kim after this episode. Yep, 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 yep. And we saw Harry Kim's clarinet be exactly where it needed to be within a Borg macrovirus. <laughs> all right, let's talk about episode two. I have no bones, yet I must flee. Yeah, so this is dealing with the ramifications of what happened at the end of episode one, where we have Boiler moving from location to location to find his perfect quarters now that they're leaving their lower decks section where they're all bunking together. I both loved and hated that the uh, glare of the engine nacelle would keep you awake at night if you had the wrong bedroom on a starship. That scared me for a second. I was like, oh, that is disturbingly realistic. And uh, now I'm worried for all of those people who, who bunk near the engine. But it was resolved in the end by a nice window shade, of course. And of course, Mariner doesn't cope well with promotion. And she does what she always does, is try and sabotage her own career and her own life. Yeah, both last episode and this episode, I felt for those joining us new on the journey, they took all our characters right back to square one and were like, hey, Brad is the screw up who can never get promoted and Mariner is self-destructive and rebellious. It's like they, they went back and gave us that fresh taste of the prototypical version of the character before allowing them to take a step forward. And so I felt like it was revisiting the start of the series on several of these character arcs in yeah. order to make the step forward that they're going to take here felt. And I hope now that, I hope what we're being told here is that once and for all, Beckett Mariner is over her self-destructive tendencies. Because I think we've been there three or four times with her now. <laughs> and let's get on with what happens next. Yeah, I mean, I think it was very great writing that and great performance from Jerry O'Connell that Mariner was called out for her crap. She covers it up with the whole thing. I'm a free spirit. And he goes, no. I love the <laughs> fact that all those usual tendencies that we have as human beings to justify the pratfalls and the, the self-sabotaging we do to ourselves every day. It was very reflective upon each of us that for Ransom to stand up and go, no, that's bull crap. This is what it actually is. And especially the end of the last episode, showing the video footage of going, this is what you did, why you deserve your promotion. And I love the appearance of Ensign Gary. Gary was great. Have we seen Gary before? We haven't. I don't think so. I think Gary's, I would remember Gary. If he has appeared yeah. previously, please let us know. And I'm sorry, Gary, but you were great. He's you very, were wonderful. He's Yeah, he's very vanilla, Gary. Like he was suspiciously normal. <laughs> to the point where on that menagerie, I thought somehow Gary was either going to A, die in the, in the line of duty, like I thought he was maybe there to be a red shirt, or Gary was somehow going to turn out to be the mastermind, the evil hiding in plain sight. So yeah, I'm kind of glad Gary turned out just to be a, 
a normal ensign to help our ensigns seem that much more abnormal. Yeah, you to really pull it out, going, "What is it? this? <laughs> none of this would have happened if you guys had done this and that." I'd lo- I'd love someone who just does not cope well with the day to day grind and the away mission processes of uh, being a member of Starfleet. Poor Gary had to replicate a new pair of pants <laughs> multiple times. There was <laughs> there was a beautiful moment in the episode. So yes, again, we've skipped straight to the analysis. So basically... That's uh, what we do here in Lower Decks. There's only 30 minutes. We got to get to it. Got to get straight to it. So yes, they have to go to a menage, as the Mariner says, to go check it out, to take some humans out of the menagerie back into freedom. Whereas the second story that's going on is Boindler sorting out the hijinks of his quarters. Absolutely. Uh, and, And Rutherford chasing that pip. Rutherford chasing that pip and going up against his arch nemesis that he's only just been introduced to, Lydic. I'm kind of glad there was nothing more to Livic because he was clearly made just to be hateable. Oh, and my favorite thing is right at the end that Rutherford just reveals, oh yeah, you mean I get stuff that I deserve? And he gets the pip away from Lydic and Lydic says at the end, Rutherford, Antendi! <laughs> the Antendi part really got me. Antendi! Yeah. Tendi bringing out her first order to cheer up and encourage Rutherford was lovely. But my favorite thing is a beautiful little moment where they actually took the time to acknowledge the end of an era. So we had their final time at, uh, at, at their bunks. We had, yeah. we had the introduction of Denti, which represents home <laughs> for, for Boindler. But a moment when Tendi and Boindler start to move on to find the new quarters. And they just take a moment, a moment for the bunks to be shown in shot and the lights going down. Beautiful little symbolic moment of going end of that era. And they just take that time, which I'm there going, well done, Lower Decks. And that was the time taken that was missing from the previous episode for me. The previous episode had no time for that kind of thing. We references to do. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about cheese. Between these two episodes, as a bonus scene on the end of the previous episode and the cold open for this episode, we had fresh glimpses of Lower Decks in other uh, races. Very So we much had so. the Klingon Lower Decks in the previous episode and the Romulan ro- Lower Decks at the start of this episode, which um, was great. I really love the Romulan Lower Decks. The and Romulan they- one was particularly good. I mean, we've had enough time with Klingons and we've made fun of Klingons and we've seen very yeah. different variations of the Klingons and, and that type of stuff. But to go into the Romulan culture and go, I've already started my betrayal and I've been double crossing him already. My you know, plan will du- come to fruition long before your plan comes to fruition. <laughs> now let's go back to this so I can be suspicious. <laughs> uh, and introducing our arc, our season threat. That ship that lifts up and, and shoots the laser out of its belly button is, <laughs> it is eerily familiar to me. I don't know if it's just Eve from Wally the vibes that I'm getting or if it's something else, but it, it is giving me deja vu, starship deja vu I'm getting from this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we shall see where it, where it comes in and where it relates to as we go along. No doubt there'll be little mm. hints as we go through the season. Yes, our, our, our main uh, away mission on the Menage uh, introduces us to Moopsie, who looks, who looks Moopsie. too Moopsie. adorable to be true. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of the puppies that they had at the retreat center in the previous season. When, when they decide to do something cute on Lower Decks, it is very cute. 
Yes. It is the Monty Python adage of bring in something cute and then make it disgustingly, uh, horribly, violently homicidal. The drinking of the bones, I have to say. <laughs> drinking something of that was, It was horrific in animation form, and it was so horrific that they could not have done it in anything but animation form. Yes, and I do believe there was the screamed line, he's chugging his bones as they killed <laughs> the guy who ran the menagerie. I think Gary called it out going, ah, he's chugging his bones. Oh, I they missed did, that. That they, was great. They did use the word chugging. <laughs> it did take my second time to pick that up. I went, did he just say chugging? Yes, he said chugging. This episode must have pushed your Mariner buttons. I know the fact that she went on the mission in her workout gear, and we need to talk about workout gear in a second, mm -hmm. I have to say. Oh, yeah. But the fact that Mariner was at her most... Most season one Mariner here, it must have uh, rubbed you the wrong way. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, as you said, we've gone, we've done this, we've trod this ground and I know they were doing, taking her back so she can evolve to the point where she was yeah. at anyway. Yeah. But like I said, I almost forgave it just because Ransom is not giving up on her and is not falling into her trait. And it was and so it, hard. I would have broken in Ransom's place. <laughs> I would have been, come on, take it seriously. We wear uniforms on this ship. Yeah. How Ransom's like uh, evolving as well from like just being the stereotypical weightlifting and fitness jock to have this, he's got a keen eye and he has yeah. that the great line that Tenny says about Mariner, go, what, is he brainless or is he playing mind games? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Mariner goes, you know, shut up. <laughs> I love it when Tendy's the smartest person in the room. Yes, 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 yes. So yeah, I did appreciate the fact that even though we were going back a step character wise, those, that, that moment of Ransom being able to call her out and just go mm. this, you do this all the time. No, don't just hide behind these, these one-off statements about all these statements of shrugging it off deal with the fact that you deserve this you are ready for this and stop stop destroying your own potential and for once seeing it land with mariner and saying oh yeah why do i do that yeah yeah very cool and his new teeth yeah. his two teeth oh that <laughs> i'm sure the brief to the animator was like we don't know what you need to do here but Make his smile as weird as possible. <laughs> Try a few things. One of them is going to be extra weird. We'll go with that one. Yes. I would have liked to see a bit more of the menagerie. We've got some lovely shots here or there. I love the central column with the creatures within it flying around and all that type of stuff. But yeah, a bit more of a exploration of what is in the menagerie. And unlike the previous episode, which is just wall to wall with references, they kept this quite, quite subdued. It wasn't just filled with obscure creatures throughout all of the animated series. In that case, I think we should make menageries or creatures and humans in captivity our topic for this week. So we're going to we're going to roll into that next. Damn right. But before we do, just acknowledgement to the gym scene with Ransom and Shax in Crusher and Troy's uniforms. Oh my goodness. And doing the exact same stretches. My partner Jess was like, oh, I know that scene. Did <laughs> Troy really wear those boob straps? <laughs> <laughs> but we saw it coming really, because it was in the trailer, I remember. So. Oh yeah, it was in the trailer for sure. The point of that scene is that Mariner overhears Ransom saying, 
she won't be my problem for much longer yes. or something like that. I thought that was the one thing in this episode that didn't work is I don't understand what he was saying there. Like at the end, he's like, all I meant is that soon I'll have cured you of this self-destructive tendency and I won't have to deal with it anymore. But I was like, no, that's not what you say if that's what you're trying to say. Um, yeah, that, that was a yeah, big reach. That, that was a really yeah, big, big stretch to try the, uh, a lot of suspension of disbelief to get to that point of going, what I meant was, you go, yeah. <laughs> when you say won't be my problem anymore, you're either going to kill them or move them on to somebody else. Yeah, that, that didn't work for me. That's never used as a sign of encouragement. <laughs> so let's go explore some creatures in captivity, Rob. Yeah, let's do it. Let's I've do got it. A bunch of, I've got a bunch of TOS, and I think this is a particularly early Star Trek scenario. Where do you want to start? Yeah, well, I'm I'm around about that era as well because I couldn't find many in the in the pantheon of more modern. I do in inverted commas Star Trek, so I went back to an episode that we briefly touched on with our animated episode. Ooh, yes, I have that on my list as well. Is this <laughs> the Eye of the Beholder? It is not to be confused with the Eye of the Beholder from season seven of Star Trek TNG. This yeah, is... there's two Star Trek episodes entitled this. There's a lot of there's a lot of pop culture episodes entitled the Eye of the Beholder. One of the most iconic Twilight Zone episodes. For those of you mm. who do not know Twilight Zone, please watch it. The original Twilight Zone is a masterpiece. The Eye of the Beholder animated series season one episode so 15. fifteen. Yeah, yeah, I remember when we talked about this as one of my two standout episodes from the animated series. The other one was later on where the computer of the Enterprise or the Enterprise becomes sentient. But yeah, this was one of the other ones which I really enjoyed. It really had that classic Star Trek element, an ancient species, and they really pushed hard in nineteen seventy three sci fi approach to things of going, Captain. We are the animals. We are not the higher species. What? Humanity is not the most smart, intelligent species? Yes, they look upon us as petulant children. The, the, the mothers look upon us as ugly. The children think we're funny. We can't hear them speaking, but we can see them laughing at how primitive we are. Yes. They wiggle. Yes. I do also remember this being a highlight for us as in our watch through of, of the animated series. Um, link in the show notes if you want to catch up on that. On watching this a second time, I think I still liked the things I liked about it last time. It, it is especially slow in the second half. Yeah, they get trapped and then we feel like we're in prison with them. It, is, it only starts to get interesting again and there's some really good, they're in my head acting, <laughs> which I really like. Yeah. I like the whole yeah, Shatner's got a decent near madness speech in this that is, you can tell he was, he was not phoning it in. He was like, oh, an acting challenge. I'm going to take that on. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Doohan taking on joint roles, not only as Scotty, but also as the captain of the ship that's been trapped in there longer. That's the reason why the Enterprise is there to begin with. And they're a lot more haggard and ragged and suspicious and not as hopeful as the Enterprise crew, just to show how brilliant and wonderful Kirk and his team are. Just to remind ourselves, they're the best. I was reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff about this episode. It's writing and creation. And this famously is the episode in which we almost got to meet Joanna McCoy, ah. Dr. McCoy's daughter. 
So I believe they introduce her as a communications officer. Her name is Randy uh, from the other ship. In the original script, Randy was uh, McCoy's daughter, and McCoy was especially distraught and in a hurry to get down to this planet because he knew he had recommended his daughter for this mission, and now she was lost in action, and he wanted to get down there and save her. And it was all taken out of the episode because it was just one too many things to fit into a 30-minute cartoon. The reviews of the original script were like, a lot is made of the fact that she's his daughter before they go on the mission. But once they meet, it's, hi, Dad, hi. And they don't even do anything dramatic with it. And the writer was not aware that McCoy's daughter already had a name, and so he called her Randy in the script. So for all those reasons, they threw that element of the plot out. But it's interesting to watch those scenes now and go, oh, you were almost McCoy's daughter. And it's interesting, especially because we were talking about the second half of the episodes is a bit sluggish. That could have really done with a bit of injection of family drama and reconnecting McCoy with his daughter. But Cooler Heads prevailed. It was taken out. And the other thing that series runner Dorothy Fontana worried about at the time was that this... DC! Yeah. That we were going one too many times to the well of Spock's telepathic abilities Mm. the fact that he was getting these waves of impressions of what the aliens were thinking i think i applauded it the first time we watched this episode that i really liked that they did not succumb to the temptation to hear the voices of the aliens or to have them speak yes the fact that they were completely mute and inscrutable i thought made this a more interesting uh truthful sci-fi story but as a result of that spock several times to keep the plot moving along had to be their voice or explain what they were thinking. And uh, DC Fontana was like, we've, it's basically a superpower at this point. We need to stop leaning on this crutch of Spock's brain can do anything. Definitely. And they shared the love around because Scotty was able to befriend the, the child. That's right. All off screen. He, the, these (laughs) implacable aliens down on the planet, we cannot explain to them that we don't belong in your menagerie. But up on the ship, off screen, Scotty's apparently able to explain, I'm not a pet. You should be me down. All of this stuff. He worked it all out with him. Yep. Worked it all out. Just leave it to Scotty. Okay. <laughs> the Scottish can solve every problem. So yeah, another thing I liked about it was it really leaned into the animation side of it. So the the creatures who run this uh, zoo like nothing we could afford in real life. The first encounter with Kirk, McCoy, and Spock with one of the more dangerous creatures coming out of the water, we'd never see. And the other one that they had to shoot in the neck. The dinosaur that falls on McCoy, so they have to dig him out. (laughs) Yes. And just how Leonard Nimoy delivered those lines. You could see the contempt. You could see it in his voice. I could see the contempt with his voiceover work. But yeah, love that type of stuff where we see creatures that would not be able to be captured in live action form, especially at the budget they have back then. But it was, yeah. And that's what makes this menagerie work as well. It's not just the captors. It's also, as they enter the menagerie, we go past several kind of cages and see different creatures. And Spock makes an odd observation. He says, I find them strangely attractive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's just like in passing and you they go, Whoa. They just drop it there. It's, make of that what you will. Yeah. And they go, no, no, we need to unpack this, Spock. All right. He goes, I find it strangely attractive. <laughs> We're finding out your kink, Spock. 
Yeah. No shaming here. Yeah. We don't want to yuck his yum. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot us to a different Menagerie episode. The original Menagerie episode. As if you uh, could The Cage, the original two cerebral pilot for Star Trek with Captain Christopher Pike lost on Talos IV in a cage with Vina. They just want him to get it on. I can't believe they thought with, it was too intellectual and too yeah too much in the brain when it's all about the lower decks, if you know what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, Ugh. and the original script, speaking of the contrast with that animated series episode where we got to see the creatures, we got to see several of those cages, the original script for the cage said, make sure you offset the other cages down the hallway so we can't really see inside them because we don't have the budget people. <laughs> Just trust us. There are some really unique and interesting aliens down there. Oh, you want yeah, to turn the there. camera to the car? No, down there, just trust down us. the force perspective hallway over there. Have a in look the at the dark. Have a look at this scantily clad blonde woman. All right, focus on her. Don't worry about those aliens. This kind of trope of the humans in an alien museum is something that was a recurring theme in pop culture at the time. Very much so. It is not just a Star Trek thing. That I am. I have read that there was a. Uh, a Twilight Zone episode that was like this as well. There was a Lost in Space episode around this time that was like this as well. I was going to bring up the Twilight Zone episode. It has one of my favorite actors of all time, Roddy McDowell, in it. People Like Us Everywhere or something like that. It finishes with the... It's Roddy McDowell and another character. They're traveling in deep space and he's all about humanity's dead and exploitive and mean and horrible. And Roddy McDowell's the op opportunistic one going, no, we're fine. And at the end, they land on a planet and they're just turned into animals in a zoo and Roddy McDowell screams out the line, Marcuson, you were right. <laughs> so yes, it was a big trait in the sixties era of let's look at we're at the top of the food chain, but what happens if we're at the bottom? Yeah. yeah it, and there is something weird about the, the mindset at the time that if we were, if we were, all powerful aliens, what we would do is collect a lot of lesser species in a zoo. That's, I think that that idea maybe took more hold than it deserved. <laughs> do you think it's, it's I, I don't think in hindsight, it's that interesting. Do you, well, is it, it, it for me, it, it is it very much a reflection of American culture at the time yeah. coming off the, they came into World War II late and they are, this is at the height of American dominance in a global. We are the superpower. We, we are, are the superpower. We are yeah. spreading out our culture and spreading out this power, especially in the 60s and the 70s eras. America is can and, do. And no. having a look in the mirror and going, are we treating our fellow human beings in other countries around the world like lesser species? Yeah. yeah. There and this is, is that, something of that there. Especially with the tail end of the 60s and the start of the 70s when we move into Vietnam, when this impenetrable, almost indefeatable American force starts to have its a short change. So yeah, it's very fascinating that of that time and where the culture was at to, yeah, as always, science fiction is the best way of reflecting what's going on at that time, which it does here. Maybe that's a point. I never really thought of it until we started talking mm. about it. So thank you, yeah. Kevin. 
For those who haven't seen the original The Cage, it it still kind of holds up. I think it's as good now as it was back then in that sort of classic TV sort of way that it doesn't really age that much in my view. But the Enterprise under Captain Christopher Pike with a smiling First Officer Spock or Science Officer Spock because we have Una Chin Riley as number one in in this episode as well. They go to the rescue of a... A long-lost crew whose radio signals traverse their path. They arrive on the planet seemingly to find their surviving colony, but it all turns out to be a mind trick by these aliens who have lured Pike into a cage. Mm-hmm. In that cage with him is Vina, a pretty blonde woman, who they attempt to get him to repopulate the species with by putting them in various settings and seeing how their captive humans will respond. In the end, Pike and Vina uh, make their escape by turning the Telosians' mental tricks against them. They escape to the surface, and the Telosians reveal, that was the plan all along. We wanted you to escape to the surface so that you could then cultivate this planet and help us recover from the atomic nightmare that that befell our species but in this whole story what we discovered about humans is that you do not respond well to captivity you're too free-spirited for our purposes yeah so uh we must let you go and poor vina though it turns out that she was badly injured in the original space crash and they put her body back together from parts with no instruction manual. So she's terribly deformed, but she gets to stay behind and live out her delusion of good health, along with her fresh delusion of a pike who wishes to stay with her. Until in the future, when we have the hideously deformed pike and the hideously (laughs) deformed Vina get to rejoin each other so they could either be happy with the reality that they're both deformed or they could yeah. be happy with the illusion that they're both young and hot. Either way. Look, Star Trek was weird from day one, Rob. <laughs> it was baked into the DNA. Because, yeah, we know that when people go, you know what, you're too free-spirited, so go on, continue being free-spirited is a common trait within humanity, that's for sure. And that's, yeah, that's what I want to talk about next because this thing comes up several times in Star Trek history is this idea that humanity among all the alien races is special in that they they cannot be satisfied with a, a comfortable cage, if you will, for our purposes today, that they must strive in order to thrive. Yes. Uh, that the pursuit of bettering ourselves is the ultimate purpose for humanity. And that makes us different from other races. That was baked into Star Trek from the very first episode. And it's still, in many respects, perhaps even more today, what powers Star Trek as a franchise is yes. that this is the story of humanity obsessively bettering itself. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting how it's evolved from being that reflection of 60s, 70s American culture of the dominant colonizers spreading out to being freedom and the exploration and finding of diversity and communication and building relationships as opposed to all conquering, all powerful, all human, all white. 
Yeah, I think this was most directly covered in Star Trek First Contact, where Picard does that speech about there's no money in the future. And he yes. says, the acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Like, <laughs> that In that speech, Picard lays it out and goes, yeah, this is what Star Trek's about. And way back in the cage, this is why the Telosians released the Enterprise and its crew from captivity is because we cannot be caged we need to better ourselves. Yeah, and I know it was a big thing with Roddenberry when he was involved with it, that he was very specific about this is how the future is. There is no, there's no arguments, there's no fighting, there's no tension, there's nothing like that. But Star Trek works at its best when that type of idealistic view of the future comes across corruption and greed and manipulation and intimidation and all that type of stuff. So some of the great stuff of D Space Nine is at its best when you've got the high ideals of the Federation going up against the capitalism of the Ferengi. Yeah, you can't see the light without the shadow. Exactly. And it's much more interesting how people exist within that. I picked out one more, the original series episode, season two, episode 12, I Mud, the second Harry Mud episode of the original series. There were two, and this is the second one. In the original one, he came to the ship with some women who were taking drugs that made them prettier than they normally are, and he <laughs> tried to sell them to some miners. That is more or less the story of Mud's women. Yay. Uh, and he gets arrested and thrown in Federation, penal colony, whatever, at the end of that episode for his sins. But at the start of I, Mud, he has somehow effected his escape. And this episode starts with an intruder on board the ship. Norman, this seemingly Starfleet officer, but he's a little wooden, even more than the acting is normally <laughs> wooden in the original series. And McCoy is remarking upon it to Spock at the start of this episode. Norman turns out to be an android who is undefeatable. He takes control of the ship, flies them for, for four days to this planet and forces, forces a small landing party led by Kirk to beam down and discover Mud the First, the king, the emperor of this planet. And there are... 2,000-something androids populating this planet, most of them scantily clad women of built course. to Mud's specifications, and he is the emperor. But the thing is that the androids would not let him leave until he brought them more humans to study. And so the crew of the Enterprise is fated to remain on this planet as an object of study for this, these androids, uh -huh. uh, thus the captivity element that I was talking about. And there's a lot of moments in this where they, they talk again about that concept of no matter how comfortable the cage, humanity is not designed to live in a cage. The androids do their best to seduce the Enterprise crew into remaining with them. Poor Uhura is tempted by immortal beauty. They tell her that they can put, transplant her brain into an android body and she will never grow old. And she is tempted for a moment. Spock and Bones are tempted with vast libraries of knowledge and equipment. And Scotty's offered a slave army of robots doing whatever engineering he wants them to do. <laughs> or he can do it himself for pleasure. Chekhov has a memorable scene on Mud's throne where two identical twin androids 
pour him wine, and he says, this is better than Leningrad. <laughs> it is a comedy episode, as any episode with Harry Mudd is going to be. And there's a lot of split-screen trickery to make these androids work. But at the heart of this episode is this idea that these humans may be temporarily seduced into a comfortable cage, but at the end of the day, they need to escape. Because they need their freedom. And thank you for pointing out that it was a comedy episode. I wouldn't have known that otherwise. <laughs> There's an interesting twist at the end of this is once the Enterprise crew is captured, Mud is packing his bags and he says to the androids, hey, can you beam my luggage up? And they said, no, you're not going anywhere. It was all a trap. We actually completed our study of humanity very quickly, Harry Mudd, and we can tell how flawed you are. No race this aggressive and greedy should be allowed free run of the galaxy. So we are going to enslave you and serve you. And your humanity is so corruptible and lazy that you will welcome our service. Uh -huh. And by taking care of you, we will free the galaxy of your corrupting influence. Kill you with kindness. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually uh, very clever way of doing it. We will lean into your baser nature and that will stifle you from, from going out and infecting the rest of the galaxy. Yes. Their aggressive and inquisitive instincts will be under our control. We shall take care of them. Is the <laughs> There's a double meaning in that. Yeah, it's really good. There's This is Star Trek firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Exactly halfway through season two. This is Peak's original series. And they are confident enough to do off-the-wall comedy. This is some of the highest high comedy in Star Trek, especially the final scenes where they are messing with the androids' logic circuits by behaving completely irrationally until the androids switch off from the strain. So there's dancing and there's a mimed baseball pitch of a supposed explosive. The actors are hamming it up here <laughs> and having a great time. And the characters are really strong. And underneath it all is this really rich, interesting sci-fi story. It has it all, iMud. Great. Excellent. And who's the writer on this one? The writer of this is Stephen Candell. Stephen Candell. All right. He was a writer of Star Trek, Mannix, Wonder Woman, The Six Million Dollar Man, Canon, Barnaby Jones, MacGyver. Yeah. So career TV writer. Good on him. There you go. Uh, a different approach to the, the caging of humanity tropes. Using similar things from the cage of trying to make it as appealing as possible or giving you your every desire. Whereas the cage is using it for the betterment of the irradiated planet. Whereas this one is a great idea of, oh no, we're keeping you here. Yeah. One ship, but we'll keep you all here. So coming back to this week on Lower Decks, I think what stands out for me is this is just a testament to the longevity of Star Trek, that this very common trope from sci-fi and pop culture in the 60s is now brought to the fore here in 2023 in a time where... Culture has largely forgotten this idea of, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if we were the animals in the cage? <laughs> um, but it survives today along with the rest of the weird ideas that date back to the earliest days of Star Trek. And, and something we can find in all of them as well is summed up perfectly right at the end when Mariner and Ransom both say in their own inimitable way, oh, humans, we're the worst. 
<laughs> we are the worst. Put us in a cage, Rob. Put us in a cage. Even when we're in a cage, they manipulate it so they kill uh, Corny McStraw curator. <laughs> just so I liked him. He was great. He was wonderful. They worked to make him just detestable enough that we would not be too horrified when that moopsie chugged his bones, but <laughs> I'll miss him. I'll miss him too. Yes, in the end, uh, despite nearly 60 years worth of storytelling within this universe in animated form or live action form, humanity needs to be caged at some points for its own benefit or for the benefit of the rest of the galaxy. Yeah.